loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from lost. Today, I'm welcoming Sunita Puri. Sunita is the medical director of the Palliative Medicine and Supportive Care Service at the Keck Hospital and Norris Cancer Center of the University of Southern California, where she also serves as chair of the Ethics Committee. She graduated from Yale with a BA in Anthropology and studied modern history at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar. She completed medical school and residency near me at the University of California, San Francisco, and fellowship training in hospice and palliative medicine at Stanford. She's the recipient of writing residencies at the McDowell Colony, U Cross Foundation, and the Mesa Refuge, and was also a finalist for the Penn Emerging Voices Fellowship in 2015. Her works appeared in the New York Times, Slate, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and JAMA Internal Medicine. In 2018, she re- received the Etzkaim Tree of Life Award from the USC Keck School of Medicine, awarded to a faculty member who models and provides humanistic and compassionate care. And today we'll be largely talking about her recently released book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. Welcome, Sunita. It's so good to be here, Cheryl. It's so good to have you, and I just want to say how very much I appreciated your book. It was, I felt as if I took kind of a, a deep and temporary dive into the internal process of, of physicians trying to grapple with these, these issues of um, medicalization and end of life. So I really thank you. I, I uh Focus energy on continuing to have compassion for people professionally trying to make those decisions. Certainly. I, you know, part of why I wanted to write this book was for precisely that reason to give people an insider's view, at least of one person's experience learning to contend with her patient's mortality, which is, of course, something we learn very little about in our medical training. So it's very much a process of trial and error, but you're dealing with people at the most vulnerable moments of their life. So part of the book story is really about my journey from becoming someone who had this inclination that maybe we should be doing things differently for our very sick patients to learning how to have the sorts of discussions that can really change the course of a person's life. Mm. And I'm aware, largely from personal experiences, how very complicated it is to try to sort out what is the right thing, quote-unquote, at a given moment. Uh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking at this particular moment of my mother, who 
had a catastrophic event at about 82. She should have died. She didn't die. She lived mm-hmm. another couple of years. And, you know, after uh, it, w- it was kind of one of those flurry situations. Afterwards, I thought, wow, um, that was a lot of resource, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Then on the other hand, those two years were meaningful. It's a very hard, uh, even someone for someone like me, who is pretty realistic about death, it's still hard to know the answer. I completely agree. And I think, you know, we, we're living in a time when medicine is so well equipped with devices and technologies and medications to treat people facing a catastrophe or an emergency. And we don't always know if they're going to pull through and what their quality of life is going to be like afterwards. But especially when we're in the throes of a true emergency or crisis, there's hardly any time to really discuss all possible paths to take. Um, and, it, and so it can be very hard to know if this sort of stuff hasn't been discussed before, what is the best thing to do for some of our loved ones? And just to be uh, a little more exact, we'd had a lot of discussions so uh, I can mm-hmm. imagine in families where uh, there there's less discussion and less realistic outlook on on death. My mom was very realistic about it, but mm-hmm. um, that still doesn't necessarily um, tell you exactly what to do in that moment. So I I thought of her a lot as I was reading those kind of kind of hard calls that you're faced with. But I think. What's very particular about you, I've had these kind of discussions with many physicians and people who have faced the decisions on the patient end in this six years of doing this show. What seemed very uh, unique in your perspective was having raised, having been raised uh, very much aware of mortality and impermanence. And I wonder if you could talk some about that because it to me, really affected your outlook on these, on these issues. Yes. So, you know, I was raised by parents who are both scientists. My father is an engineer, and my mother, who in many ways I consider the heartbeat of this book, she is an anesthesiologist. And yet, despite their very rigorous scientific training, both are extremely spiritual people. And they set for me the example that science and spirituality can sit side by side. And it's really from their experience of divinity um, that I learned at a very young age that all things in this life will pass. All things are impermanent. And part of that impermanence is our own life and our own mortality. And I grew up very much immersed in this idea that mortality is actually a very natural thing and the brevity of our lives is actually part of what can make them beautiful. And so I didn't grow up having an intense fear of death. Obviously, the thought of it, especially the thought of losing people I love, is extremely saddening. But there was also a sort of peace that I learned to think about when I thought of death. And that was very different 
than what I encountered in my medical training, which was very much about focusing on keeping a patient alive, sometimes at all costs, including the cost mm. of their suffering and dignity. And that's when I started to really go back, interestingly enough, to those lessons that I'd learned from my parents. It took me becoming a doctor to really fully embrace some of the spiritual lessons that they had taught me, which I find kind of things coming full circle that I too was now a scientist, but I was also becoming more spiritual because of what I'd been exposed to as a child. That was an interesting aspect to me too, because I've worked with a number of people whose parents moved here from somewhere else Mm-hmm. And there's always always a there is a commonality no matter where that other place is uh, where you're trying to grapple with bringing some of your parents tradition and and belief system into a completely different uh, environment and home and I felt that in the book that you had to learn to put those two together in some way and Interesting to me, it seemed to me that palliative care, uh, going into palliative care sort of helped that (laughs) or did that, Mm -hmm. but they were not that supportive of you doing it, were they? No. Originally. (laughs) One of the interesting, I find it so fascinating, right, that I, I literally remember telling my mother that my mother, who's an anesthesiologist, really wondered, as did my father, why would you do all this medical training only to doctor patients, many of whom are going to die? And you know that from the beginning of your relationship with them. And it was an interesting, it was a very interesting and unexpected perspective that they brought to me when I told them I was thinking about going into palliative medicine, um, in part because they were the very ones who had taught me that suffering is a part of life all lives are impermanent, and that there were many ways to witness and therefore help people bear their suffering. I thought they would be on board because some of the hardest (laughs) suffering I think we face is when we're looking our own mortality or that of someone we love in the face. And yet, you know, my dad thought being a cardiologist would be a better use of my skills. So it was very unexpected. Yeah, there was that kind of creative tension. Uh, there's a little a little quote of your mother in the book where it, it says, doctors aren't gods, she told me. We can only do our best to help people, but everything that happens is because of God's plan. And yeah. you say, I wanted to ask why a young mother's death would be a part of any plan, but my mother's pager went off. I, I thought that was so uh, emblematic, kind of, of the tension between that spiritual outlook and the actual um, drive that, you know, that she had in her life and uh, the career that certainly took uh, a lot of uh, ambition to accomplish, maybe particularly as a woman and a woman from another country. And uh, she's an interesting combination to me. Certainly. And I think as much as I adore my mom, I did not want the portrait of her in the book to be one of just adoration because our relationship is very complex. Um, I think how much she fought for her career um, 
certainly put, it, it made me feel quite alone as a young mm-hmm. child. Um, and I, you know, I write in the book about basically spending stretches of my childhood in her call room and waiting for her to come back, waiting for her in daycare when I was always the last kid picked up. But as much as I resented her ambition in some way, I also loved her so much and still do that one of the ways I thought to honor her was trying to become a doctor just like her. Did you know that at the time that maybe you were, I know you didn't, didn't set out to be a palliative care physician. You set out to be, I believe, an internist. Did you know when you started medical school that in part that was an honoring of her or did that come clear later? I think my path towards medicine had always been guided by my love for her. In full disclosure, I think my first love was always writing. That was Mm -hmm. always my first love. So I think I was pulled into medicine wanting to be like my mother and wanting to honor her. But I think I was pulled into palliative care because of my love of language and of thinking about how we can use our words in skillful ways to help people understand the situations that they're really in medically and help them help to ask them the questions that they will then think about to make the best decisions for themselves. So it's an interesting path that both my love of writing and my love of my mother led me down. And it, and it certainly comes together in this book, but I feel you're also very nuanced in sharing stories also of people who were not um, able to allow themselves to benefit from the conversation. And I'm thinking of one, one daughter in particular who was just determined that, quote unquote, everything be done, and she meant everything medically um, be done. And how difficult that must be to live with knowing what the very, very likely outcome is in a situation like that. Uh, the, the patient, I believe, was quite near death and did die pretty quickly, but a little brutally. Yes? Yep. So that, the, the situation you describe is in the chapter called Fight. And I chose the chapter title very deliberately because what happened was we were in the position of fighting this patient's daughter and son, um, but also because some of the language that they used to describe him was that he was a fighter and he would make it through this. And these are sorts of terms that we hear very, very frequently in family meetings. And part of what it means to do this work well is to be almost like an accidental linguist where you have to have, you have to ask people what being a fighter means, what's worth fighting for, how do they understand the battle and what's at stake. And I have found that to be incredibly illuminating when the patient or their loved one can engage with me on that level because sometimes you really get you see them pause and really start to think about what it is they're trying to say when they describe their loved one as a fighter. But in that instance, unfortunately, no matter what we did, 
the patient's daughter and son really wanted us to do things that were, as you mentioned, quite brutal to the patient. And he died in a way that I regret because we could not get them to understand that doing CPR, continuing him on the medications and the machines he was on, none of that would reverse the massive stroke he had suffered and the quality of life that he would have to endure in the coming years if he even survived the hospital stay. And I included that story not just as a close examination of some of the language that people tend to use in these family meetings and really unpacking what they mean, but also because I think there's a misconception that palliative teams can can come in and make everything better with every Mm -hmm. difficult family situation. And just like medicine cannot cure everything, we as palliative care physicians cannot always make everything better in every tense, difficult situation. And I really felt strongly when I was writing the book that I needed to include stories like that, not just the stories where I was able to help someone come to a different realization than they might have had I not been involved in their care, but also the stories where no matter what I did, it wasn't going to change that patient's outcome. Because I think Mm. as an attending physician out of my training now for five years, almost five, um, I have come to really be humbled by the limits of my ability and learning to accept when no matter what I do, a family may not ever be on the same page as the medical team or me about what might be the best and most compassionate care for their loved one. You know, that was a a very uh, evocative part of the book for me. Uh, I I just embarrassingly recently finished all my advanced directives. And the reason wasn't that I wasn't trying to do it. It was that it it, it became... The longer I've done this, the more complicated it's become. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what I might want in any given, and all the different various situations that might befall me. And what came very clear to me was that I would endure most any kind of suffering if it, if it led to an easing for my children. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, that there's some way that uh, at that point I was figuring I'd be half there, you know, and if they needed to get there to say goodbye and I was, let's say, plugged in, that um, I'd want them to be able to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very, it was very interesting. So when I was reading this part of the book, I was thinking about this daughter and just praying for her that she could live with the peace of knowing she had d- tried everything, uh, that somehow that would end up helping her. And, of course, mm-hmm. what what often does happen is that it doesn't help people and they are left with a lot of trauma. But yeah. I had this sense maybe having had the conversation, having made a conscious choice, we're going to try everything, that you weren't able to help him but maybe her to an extent, uh, that might be a, you know, wishful thinking fantasy, but that's what I was thinking about. That's an interesting point. And I have definitely been in family meetings where a family might say, 
even if he goes, even if my father is going through a lot of suffering, you keep him alive until we get there. And I can certainly see the possible benefit for family members. The discomfort that bubbles up for me in those moments is that sometimes, as you mentioned, what we have to do to sustain a patient's body is quite traumatic. And sometimes families don't actually know what their loved one will experience if we put them through many rounds of CPR or if we intubate them um, and there's really no chance that they'll ever come off a ventilator. And I think some of the moral distress that my colleagues often experience and discuss with me is around how to navigate scenarios where a family might be asking for something that benefits them more than the patient. Because I think many of us as doctors feel that our first obligation is to the patient. And of course, in palliative care, we see the, the nuances and the gray areas that sometimes treating the family is what we need to do. I think the question, though, is what sort of treatment is gentle and kind versus what sort of treatment is really brutal? And how do we help the family potentially come to an understanding that what they might want may actually be very painful and harmful for the person they love? And sometimes we can get them to see that and sometimes we can't. Um, Something I've learned being an attending is that my fellow attendings, I know we talk a lot about residents and medical students having trauma, traumatic experiences when they're asked to provide care that they perceive is not going to help the patient. And I think attendings really suffer from that too, that no amount of experience in the field takes away the discomfort that people, that physicians experience when they're asked to do something that they feel constitutes harm. And I think some of the situations where families have asked us to do things for their benefit, it makes it causes quite a bit of distress in my in my colleagues who sometimes feel that they have no other recourse than to do what the family says. And that's, I think, so much a matter of. Uh, I'm watching this with several people peripheral in my life who don't you know, immerse themselves in this all the time, like, like I do, making those kind of decisions out of really a lack of education about when, when you're fighting for when you shift your gears to fighting for um, a peaceful end. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that fight, that fight language is so immersed in the cancer community that I work with. Uh, just it's it's laced in and out of everything, uh, fighting, uh, yep. war imagery, and yeah. it seems as if you're failing if you don't fight. I have a a good friend who's lived with ovarian cancer for six years now, and mm-hmm. when she was diagnosed, she just said, "I'm not, I don't, I've never used fight metaphors in my entire life. I'm not sure, <laughs> you know, how to." navigate this everyone's telling me to fight not it's not yep. me she she actually came up with the idea of imagining minions those little oh, uh, yeah. cartoon characters <laughs> going around and finding the, the bad cells and <laughs> so we all sent her minion t-shirts and this and that uh 
So that's, that's, amazing. that's a way to, to go about it, I guess, I guess, but I'll it, but it is, yeah, it is so endemic to the, uh, to the world of cancer for sure. Mm-hmm. And I imagine other, other things too. And that's what's so fascinating to me. I mean, at USC, the motto is fight on and that's great for a football team, but I don't know <laughs> that it really translates as a motto for, you know, a cancer center or a cancer patient. And yet it is, that is the lexicon that people reach for. It's that ingrained in our culture and our language around illness that, as you said, people who might make the decision that they don't want another round of chemotherapy or they've had enough surgeries, I've heard in family meetings their loved one might say to them, why do you want to give up? And I think Mm -hmm. that binary between fighting and giving up is a very toxic binary, and yet it's such a common use of language. And I think we need to change some of that language. Well, and and maybe some... I have a great belief that contemplation about the end of life actually changes how we approach it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm hoping so, since I contemplate a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, to me, if you've never thought much about the inevitability of death, about your own mortality, about not ending your life feeling as if you've failed... Uh, if you've never thought about all of that, it's much more likely that living at any cost is going to be the outcome. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I quote several times in the book from the Bhagavad Gita, which is an extraordinarily powerful section in the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata. And in this section, the Bhagavad Gita, one of the things that Lord Arjuna says, sorry, Lord Krishna says to Arjuna, the warrior um, on the battlefield, is that meditating on death throughout your life will prepare you for it. And there's this notion of understanding that the end of the body is not necessarily the end of you. And people who really do contemplate on that their whole lives, I've seen my parents do this, and their approach to the end of life is very much one of acceptance. But my dad has told me many times that you must think about it well before it happens. And that's a process that's different from filling out an advanced directive. It is, as you said, a contemplative practice. And thinking about what your life means, thinking about what might be important to you if things suddenly change. And I think it's, a, it's very human to get anxious and fearful when contemplating the end of life. I think that's completely normal. But I wonder if we can hold both the fear and the anxiety, but also the openness to contemplating our mortality and what it means to live a temporary life. And by what means, if any, we would want that life prolonged in the event of a serious illness. 
That's a good place to go to our break. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, all of that. And you can find Sunita Puri's book, the good, That Good Night, anywhere wonderful books are sold. And you can find Sunita herself at Sunita Puri, that's S-U-N-I-T-A-P-U-R-I dot com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere. Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, the Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been here talking with Sunita Puri about her wonderful book, That Good Night. And um, I thought it might be nice to start this segment bringing your father in a bit more. Because, yes, I see why you say your mother is the heart of the book. And yet your father is also the heart of the book. <laughs> you know, his, yes. his lessons with you, his direct teachings about impermanence and service to me really really stood out and I wondered if you'd like to share a little bit from the book about him I would love to do that and um, I'm actually I thought about reading from the author's notes 
but I actually think that I'm going to read from a different section, which is more about my father's growing up and what he learned about suffering as a young child. So I just have to find the section. It's so crazy. You write a book and you know everything in it. And then you can't find the section you want. But then you have to find it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So I found it here. This is from the chapter called Decisions. My father knew a few things about suffering. The youngest of seven children, he grew up in Daryaganj, a district in Delhi that my father remembered fondly for the few things he enjoyed as a child. Sticky orange jalebi and milky chai, a rare outing to Golcha Cinema, and narrow interconnected alleys where he would hide from his mother and play cricket with friends from school. From the rooftops of apartment complexes, he would fly kites he'd made himself from paper and string, lying down to sleep on these same rooftops when summer arrived. Gazing at his neighborhood from this vantage point, he observed that suffering was inescapable because he saw it everywhere. The lepers who had so little that they begged the poorest families for scraps from dinner. An apartment complex filled with women who had been raped in the violence of India's partition, only to be abandoned or rejected by their families. And he saw the suffering of his own mother, whose rheumatoid arthritis was so severe that my father came straight home from elementary school to help prepare the family dinner. He'd mix together flour and water into a doughy paste and make oddly shaped chapatis with his tiny hands. Since my grandfather could never seem to keep a job, my father devised his own ways to help my grandmother buy food for dinner. He began to play marbles with local children and would bring home the prize money he won in street tournaments. Occasionally, he'd even trek to wealthier areas and clandestinely attend weddings. When guests threw money at the bride and groom after the ceremony ended, my father would grab as many rupees as he could and race home. Witnessing my grandmother's suffering was unbearable for my father. He prayed to God to give him his mother's arthritis. It would be easier to have the arthritis himself than to bear witness as she endured it. But this is my share of suffering, my grandmother would tell him when he shared his prayer with her. This is my luck, not yours. You cannot suffer for me. So you couldn't fix her suffering, I would say, although in retrospect, I'm not sure if I was making an observation or asking a question. No, my father acknowledged, but I had to learn that a part of lessening her suffering was just seeing that she was suffering and doing what I could to help her. My father didn't speak of suffering as something to lament or avoid. He spoke about it as part of being human as something we all had the power to endure, even transcend. Suffering didn't preclude survival. Oh, I'm glad you shared that part of the book 
because it it was so uh, meaningful to me and especially seeing the connection between that and what you offer your patients that that's kind of in your cells that uh, everything isn't over even when there's suffering that can't be taken away uh it's very powerful to me i i don't think i grew up with that idea whatsoever I, you know, I feel so blessed that these lessons were talked about when I was a kid because I think they're far more, they're useful not even just in the practice of medicine, but in life, in understanding that a situation, no matter what it is, that may be extremely difficult will not be permanent. And some of the ways you can help yourself with your own suffering are sometimes just to acknowledge it rather than repress it or tell yourself it's going to be okay. Um, and I really think at the time, to be totally honest, as I wrote about in that chapter, I really didn't like hearing some of this stuff. I didn't like my father taking me to a nursing home to visit patients who had no family. I really didn't like going there. But I'm so grateful he did that. I'm so grateful that he taught me that sitting with someone that you don't know, which is something that I'm called to do every day, is actually one of the most meaningful things you can do as a human being. And I also think uh, leads to maybe your share of suffering in a way. I'm thinking of the part of your book I have right in front of me here where your brother was visiting and you say, trying to be Ms. Socrates hadn't worked. I sobbed yeah. for all the people I couldn't sob in front of. In front of, I reminded myself I wasn't a doctor now, right now that in order to go back to work and be a doctor, I had to let myself grieve, grapple with what it meant to lose a 36-year-old colon cancer, to care for a woman who would rather take her own life than live another day with nausea. And uh, I loved in that section, too, that you had been watching Joy Luck Club well, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what had catalyzed it. I I love movies as as sobbing catalysts. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it really works for me. But your brother mm-hmm. was there, and he suggested that you switch to Mean Girls. I I adored yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> he and I have watched Mean Girls probably a thousand times. Like we, I don't know why, but it's a movie that we really loved watch together. Um, and I. I still remember that moment where I started weeping when watching the Joy Luck Club. And, you know, one of the main characters had just lost her own mother. And I just, it, as you said, it's kind of a crying catalyst to look at a work of art, something that exists apart from your life, and allow it to bring out your own sadness. And my brother thought it was actually kind of funny that I was crying because he was like, why, you've seen this movie a million times and never cried. (laughs) But I also, the section that you read was very, very true that I really had to find a way of allowing myself to experience everything that the full force impact of what I was seeing on a daily basis as a very new palliative care fellow because when you're in your internal medicine residency, you're not seeing patients who are this sick on a consistent basis. 
Um, so it was a huge transition, and yet there was very little discussion in our training about how to handle what we saw. So we all had to do it on our own. And I know that uh, that a mutual friend of ours who mm-hmm. is chaplain, uh, the wonderful Dina Joseph, Mm-hmm. works a lot with that how physicians take care of their emotional of the emotional fallout from yeah. exposure to many many losses and griefs and i would imagine more so of course in your specialty but every sure. doctor must must have some of that experience i think i'm so grateful for dina's work and for the growing awareness that physicians have very emotional reactions to the things we see our patients go through. Um, it's definitely, it's, it's interesting that we are, our patients want us to be very human with them, but we expect ourselves to be objective and reasonably detached. And I think that's not a reasonable expectation. But knowing how you can be a doctor and be a human being at the same time, I think that's something that merits a lot more discussion in our training, um, both in medical school and in residency, when you are, as a young doctor, really confronting loss and grief and anger and that feeling of failure in a very intense way and during a very rigorous training where you're not necessarily having the time to sit down and process what you're seeing. I know I experienced that, and I found my solace in writing about it. And I think that you were very, uh, so very honest about how to be a person and a doctor in your book. I'm thinking in particular of your decision to move, you know, letting your practice of medicine affect your life um, deciding to move back closer to your family, for instance, uh, mm-hmm. giving yourself room to grieve. Um, just many decisions I saw you making that were directly impacted by thinking of yourself in the situations that your patients were in, which, of course, many people try to keep a distance from that as if it's possible, I think. But you didn't try to do that, it doesn't seem. Certainly. I think, you know, whenever I, and even now when I see patients, I really try to put myself in the, on the other side of the discussion I'm having. Because when I have tried to be objective and detached, I notice that sometimes the words I use or my approach comes off as detached when I most need to be very engaged with them. And so I think thinking about what someone might be experiencing on the other end before our conversation, during and after, gives me a much better window into how to approach the gravity of the conversation I'm about to have with them. I recently took care of a patient whose cancer was cured, but whose radiation has basically devastated his trachea. And... So he is living with a very precarious airway. And I thought and thought about him before I went to see him. And I thought a lot about 
how tragic it was that the cancer was gone, but the consequence of the treatment was what was going to take his life at some point. Mm, yes. And it still sits with me. And I had to think very carefully about how to bring up code status and things like hospice for someone who was otherwise very vital, but who could, un, you know, who could experience a terrible you know, suffocation at any time. And what was our plan going to be? Absolutely. So I really, when, I was, when I was thinking about how to talk with him, I thought a lot about what it would be like to be hearing what I was going to say and how could I be gentle and honest because I really do think so much of our compassion has to be in the context of our honesty. And also... Uh, this brings up for me what I another thing I really appreciated, which is talking about the difference of context and how that impacts our hopes for the end of life, even if we have thought about it. Uh, maybe you can share the part of your book about when you were, I guess, working. Was it South Central where you were doing home visits? South LA. Yep. Which in, in South LA includes a lot of different areas um, and zip codes. So yes, when I was a new attending, I worked half a day every day doing home visits in South Los Angeles. Um, and then I did the other half of my day doing palliative care consults in the hospital. Um, and I absolutely saw very clearly how socioeconomic status really changes people's experiences of of end-of-life care. Um, And I can read a bit from that section. That would be wonderful. Thanks. All right. Many of my patients feel that they have barely lived at all when I show up to help them die comfortably. I enter their lives and their homes as a stranger when familiar comforts are what many need. Our relationship will be one of brief and necessary intensity. I assure them that it is natural to fear the word and concept of hospice, and I listen as they tell me about an aunt who died in terrible pain, even with hospice, about their fear that accepting hospice means agreeing to do nothing for their father about their worry that hospice care actually shortens people's lives. I explain that my job as a hospice physician is to identify and treat the discomfort their disease has caused. It's also to get to know patients and their loved ones, to assess how they are coping, to ensure that they have the right resources to help with everything from planning a funeral to moving through the chokeholds of grief that will unexpectedly grip them. Some ask if I can take a family photo for them with their cell phones, and I oblige. I pray with them when they ask me to. I listen as some of them tell me about their loves, their pets, their accomplishments, their regrets. I listen also to the ones who cannot speak, who instead groan or babble, who grow quiet when I hold their hands or play them a song that their caretakers tell me that they love. This is as essential to hospice doctoring as dosing medications for pain or nausea, for agitation or insomnia. 
Yet although I am seeing a patient because I have agreed that they are approaching death, if I do my job well, what I actually encounter is the full force of their lives. At 45, Sergio isn't thinking about how to die a good death. He is still grappling with why death has come for him so soon. I notice an open photograph album on his bed. I want to show you who I used to be, he says. I did not always look like this. I barely recognize the man in the photos he shows me. He was probably twice his current size, a round, joyful-looking man who lived in cotton t-shirts and a size too small jeans, his wife's arms wrapped tightly around his muffin top. My friend took these, he says, as he shows me his wedding photographs. He and Maria married in the church they still attend, their reception full of home-cooked foods brought by friends and set out on folding tables like those in a high school gymnasium. Neither he nor his wife has family in the United States. We don't have much, he told me on my first visit, but we do have God. There is a rosary draped around the bottle of liquid morphine at his bedside. With the help of a neighbor, Maria tries her best to get him in and out of bed, bathe him, and recognize when to give him different medicines for pain and nausea. Is this one for pain or is it for nausea? She double-checks with me. Her brow furrows and there are deep lines between her eyebrows that Sergio tells me are new. Maria is afraid, as so many caregivers are. Sometimes I don't understand what problems I should be looking for, she tells me. And I could never forgive myself if I missed something, if he suffered because I am not a nurse. It helps her when I show her the various ways the body demonstrates distress. Does he ever breathe like this? I ask in Spanish, heaving my own chest rapidly and wearing a look of distress. She shakes her head. I act out other symptoms aside from the obvious grimacing and pain, the rapid shallow breathing that comes with cancerous fluid or a blood clot clogging up the lungs the confusion and agitation that can characterize the final hours. I start to write down which medicine to give in each instance, but remember that Maria cannot read very well. We instead discuss whether to use the liquid or the pill that dissolves under Sergio's tongue, but I know she will not remember at all. I cannot expect her to. Her own breathing becomes more rapid and shallow every time we discuss these things. I feel a heaviness in my chest when she asks me why hospice cannot pay for caregivers. I wish I knew. I wish our system were different, I tell her, silently wondering, as I often do, why our healthcare system will pay for last-ditch effort chemotherapy for a dying patient, but not for one trained caregiver to help them remain comfortable at home. After I wrap up my visit, Maria walks me to my car, She is barely five feet tall, but she is protective of me and walks me out every time I visit, her arm around my waist. When we reach my car, she turns and asks me if I believe in God. I don't know why this happened to him. He's only 45. He's done nothing wrong, nothing at all. Maybe if we beg God, maybe if you also beg God, he won't need your medicines and I won't be alone. 
She barely finishes the last sentence, burying her face in her hands and weeping. That's that's a whole the beginning of a whole other hour, a second hour that we don't have, unfortunately. But the impact of economics. I was thinking about how my wife's death depended on a, a large cast of characters. Probably a hun- probably a hundred people in our support community uh, over wow. the course of the years of her illness, and how that made a good home death possible. Without it, yeah. I don't see how we could have had it. And so we have to broaden our thinking, don't we, about what a good death is <laughs> for people, exactly. depending on what their actual resources are. Uh, I po- I hope people will, will go read your book because I think they'd have a much better conception of that after reading it than before. Certainly. I, I, I really I wish- want to thank... Yeah, I, we're, we're nearly out of time, unfortunately, but I really want to thank you for being here, and I do so hope people will go read your book, because I think it really deepens this conversation astronomically. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I hope we'll run into each other again. Yes. Me too. To, Thank you so much for having me on the show. You're so welcome. And and out there, listeners, you can find Sunita Puri at S-U-N-I-T-A-P-U-R-I, sunitapuri.com. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.